This week on Fan Talks, we're discussing the Hold Steady. Well, it's a righteous. Our hands are more steady. I'll be John Castle Buddies. Let me know when you're ready. All right, everybody, welcome to Fan Talks. Uh, very, very special edition. We're uh, very excited to have on our Hold Steady episode, Craig Finn and Tad Kubler, co-founders of the Hold Steady. Thank you for coming on, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. And I forgot, I was so excited to introduce Craig and Tad, I forgot to introduce the hosts, the co-hosts. I'm Alex. Hello. Usually in Minneapolis, <laughs> this time in Colorado. Seth, usually in Colorado, now in Hawaii. Right. And the whole city in, in New York, I presume? Yeah, we're in, we're in Brooklyn. Okay, so let's get started on the, the whole study story is such a fascinating one. Um, and I guess... It starts when Lifter Puller breaks up yeah. and you guys moved to New York. Can you, can you tell us about where you guys were at yeah. kind of career-wise, if you want to still do music and just in your personal life when you moved to New York? Where are you at? I, I moved to New York first and I was, uh, I was unsure. Um, I was sort of done with, uh, I really had a, it's hard to explain, but I, I was sort of done with the parts of music I didn't like at least like I didn't really like like Vans and mm. you know they're like like being in a struggling kind of younger band there's just like it, it becomes automotive a lot which isn't to say that was the part I was handling in Lifter Puller but it's just sort of there's always like a lot of stuff that like I don't know breaking down and and uh, you know, finding somewhere to put the gear and all that. There just sort of seemed to be all the uh, sideshow that was that sort of had exhausted me. I, I, I think I was aware that I was probably going to keep writing songs, mm -hmm. but um, I didn't really want to pursue it on the level that we were pursuing it at. Um, but, you know, <laughs> so I moved to New York and I didn't really have a plan about New York either, other than that it seemed like a cool place to go. Um, and I had a job in this digital club network, it was called this music uh, internet um, music company that a friend of ours had given, uh, given me. And, um, but it was still, I was still involved in music that way. And uh, I didn't know if I thought I was gonna go into the music industry or I was just like, that just seemed like a place to land. But I just got bored, you know? Um, and then Tad, and Tad can talk about his own journey, but Tad moved to New York in 2002, I think, and uh, a couple of years later. And by that time, I was fully bored and was like, "We gotta, you know, we gotta do something." And we we did. We started playing covers, which, um, like most things in the Halt Steady, I find found like when the pressure is very much off, um, the best stuff happens. And uh, yeah, so these guys who had a comedy troupe um, called Mr. Ass said, like, "Did you want to?" play some covers at this thing you know and they had like four songs and i was like can you could you put together a band i was like pretty bored i was like yeah tad had just moved i'm like we got to do this so we did like we do like kind of like bumper music at this comedy thing and then we did um what were the songs we did, we did i know we did cheap trick do we do a cheap trick yeah song? we did i want you to want me i want you to want me because <laughs> yeah each, each of the four guys got up and did their own song I want you to want me. David Bowie. Um, um, uh, Moon Age Daydream. Um, Are you ready for the Sex Girls? Yes. From yes, uh, yes. from the um, Revenge of the, the Nerds soundtrack. And what was the other one? Uh, ACDC. If you want blood. Yes. So we were playing kind of hard rock covers at this thing, and mm -hmm. uh, it, two of the guys. Um, I can't remember. One of the guys uh, was John Daly, who. Um, is in um the most Probably recent he, he's in a lot of stuff but he's in the most uh recent um 
uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm season. Oh, he's really? The, okay. What, he's, what, the what, what, he's the mailman. Lionel, I think, might be his name. He's the, <laughs> oh, shorts. yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. And um, and he's been in he's been like the Nick Kroll show and stuff. And then there's another guy whose name is Brent, right? Um, who is in a ton of stuff that I can't remember now, but uh, he's in even more stuff. Um, they were all UCB guys. Right? Yeah, they were all like, you, you, uh, yeah, Upright oh, Citizens Brigade people. Um, and they had this this troop. It was really funny. Um, in fact, there's still jokes from that show that like that we did twice that are part of our vernacular. Yeah. So they were really funny guys. <laughs> and uh, there was also this, there was one guy in there that his name was Vadim, but we thought for some reason I didn't get his name right. We thought they were calling him the Dean, uh, like like he was the Dean of comedy. Like right. was, um, but anyway, so that's that's how it started. And Ted can talk about what he was doing meanwhile. Yeah, like uh, I guess when Lifter Polar <clears throat> um, ended, Craig went to New York. I went to LA for a little bit, mm. and I had sort of uh, in, through the course of touring in Lifter Polar, um, I had met my then girlfriend, now my daughter's mother, um, and she was from New York. And so she, she I was going to move to New York, but she didn't want to live there anymore. We moved to LA. We were there for a few months and then she moved back to New York. I moved back to Minneapolis for a while, but in doing so, I started coming out to New York to visit her a bunch and I reconnected with Craig. And that's kind of, you know, when he was like, you know, hey, if you were out here, we could do this thing that these guys are talking about. And so I literally, I, I think I, I packed up a couple of bags full of stuff and grabbed like, you know, at that point, I think the one guitar that I owned and, and like fucking just came out to, to New York. Lost to history, though, is the fact that in that middle part, after you left L.A., yes. before you moved to New York, you joined the band, the Minneapolis band called Song of Zarathustra, and recorded an album with them, which is amazing, and went on a huge European tour, yeah, like, like six yeah. weeks, right? Six weeks, six-week European tour that was... Um, like awesome, exhausting, and terrifying. <laughs> it's definitely on the like, uh, you know, more on the punk rock, hardcore squats, uh, like playing squats, and yeah. you know, uh, which is a touring I've never personally done. But I, it's, uh, I, I think that you probably you uh, maybe get too old to do it comfortably after a while. Yeah, like for instance, we played this place in Spain, and <laughs> when I asked somebody where the bathroom was in the in the squat that they had. We just sort of looked out the window and went like kind of <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah. And I was just like, where isn't the oh, bathroom? what the hell is going on here? Where isn't the bathroom? Yeah. So, so Tad, you had had the reminder kind of, because I was going to ask like, what did you guys miss about, you know, in these couple of years after the Fuller broke up, but you had had the reminder then. Um, I mean, I definitely. With that lifestyle? Well, you know, I had been in bands before, um, you know, and, and play guitar. I, I really like playing bass and lifter puller, but the one thing I missed was honestly was working with Craig, you know, lifter puller was a very, for as much experience as I'd had playing in other bands and, and putting out records and stuff like that. It was lifter puller was a very different experience for me. And I, it was probably the, one of the more important aside from connecting with Craig musically, it was, it was maybe one of the more impressionable things. Uh, on kind of how I even enjoy music and what I enjoy about it and how I, I guess, create music or whatever you want to call it. But um, <clears throat> it, it, it was, you know, Lifter Puller was, it, it, it's, it's easy to look back on it. I think maybe, I don't want to say more fondly, but, and, and maybe not remember how, you know, we didn't, we didn't have, any kind of like the infrastructure or the help that the whole steady has and, and it was it was up to craig to handle a lot of that uh, almost exclusively it was i mean it was something i took on uh because i wanted to i mean lifter puller was in a weird way weirdly ambitious and um you know i think like i'd been both dan dan steve and i had all lived on the east coast and we definitely wanted to be more than a local band and uh i think even though like we tended, we actually got pretty popular in Minneapolis. Right. There was always a lot of frustration about the lack of sort of national things happening and, 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 and repeated efforts, you know, there was touring and, uh, and uh, so, 
<laughs> but you know, I, I think that that was, um, that was something like that caused me to enjoy lifter puller less when I was in it, that maybe I should. Yeah, sure. I feel like lifter puller could have, would have been one of the bands that really would have benefited maybe more from being in the internet age, possibly. Right? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, if lifter puller would have gotten like a decent booking agent and just kept <laughs> kept us on the road we would have been up for it you know and, yeah. and we but uh but we sort of just it was weird i mean again the internet was part of it and i think like we were removed um in some way um geographically and otherwise we were kind of in our own little world right uh, which, which was a plus and a minus and i got bored when i didn't have a band that's how i started a band Gotta start it with a positive jam. We started just hanging out and um, writing songs, and we kind of like, you know, like Tad would play the guitar, and I'd kind of pace around and put lyrics to the the riffs, and uh, and then you know we'd start to show them to Galen and Judd, our um, our uh, drummer and bass player, but. but you know, we also started like just kind of checking into things. I and I think like the last waltz was had had come out, had been reissued, and um, it I went to see it on the in the movie theater, um, and I there was I guess the big thing about that there was a general um, period of I'd grown up with punk and hardcore and classic rock was stuff I knew, but I I was kind of suspicious of it, or I thought it was like not as cool as punk or hardcore or indie music. And I think in my late 20s, which is this period, I started to like, you know, go into used record stores and buy a copy of Let It Bleed for $4 and be like, this is so much better than like all these indie records I've been listening to, you know, like this is just, it's classic maybe for a reason, you know? And um, and sort of embracing some of the, I guess, yeah, you know, classic, just rock and roll songs. So, I know, yeah, the last waltz was something we would watch and we would drink. The big thing was, we would, lost to the legend of Hold Steady is, we would go down to this deli in my house, near my house, and get this Ballantine Ale, which was uh, um, the green cans. I don't know if you know what it looks like, but it's like these shiny green cans. And, uh, and it always had, we, our big joke was that, that they buried it um to make it like to keep it cool to keep it cool because it always had a little bit of dirt on the top that we'd wipe Uh off but we realized later that that was probably like rat droppings um um, so but we 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 were fueled by ballantine ale just which i think was just something like the can looked cool yeah um and it was affordable (laughs) it was yeah the price (laughs) was right and uh i think it i I wonder I don't know, Valentine, I think it's a Jersey beer, but maybe, I don't know, we'll have to look that up. But um, but yeah, we were just drinking a lot of Valentine and like doing, like listening to records, watching watching The Last Waltz. And then, you know, I, there was a looseness in that, those performances that I think we were uh, enthralled by. And that kind of like, you know, I mean, I think there's this idea of like, um, with indie rock, you sort of get on stage and you all play your parts. And if you all play your parts at roughly the same time and you all stop at the same time, it sounds pretty good. Right. <laughs> but, but you aren't necessarily listening to the other dudes or like if someone says, you know, another verse, everyone would be like, what the fuck? I don't know how to do it. You know, <laughs> like I did, I did my part. I did it six times in a row. That's what we're supposed to. And so, you know, to watch, you know, just being kind of maybe interested in having a band that could be a little looser and, you know, um, I thought I I started to thinking a lot about. Um, I remember going to see um, uh, uh, Greg Dooley. I think it was the Twilight Singers, and he had this pretty great band with him at the time. And and he would you know he'd do these long periods where the band would just vamp and he'd talk. I mean that's a Springsteen thing too, right? right? But, um, but like indie bands don't do that, you know? Like 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 and and I was like, I sort of want to have sure. a band like that. Like I can tell a story in the middle of the song and everyone can kind of stick with it and then when i'm done with this you know done with the story we can go like that and, you know <laughs> and that's like that's like you know that that's pretty rudimentary or elementary 
but that's something like you don't in indie rock or at least the scene we were coming from people didn't do that and so i sort of thought it would have be fun to have a band like that that's one of the things we talked about and that's one of the things we did yeah like 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 it seemed like especially around the time of coming out of the scene we did the performance part of it it wasn't necessarily it wasn't cool to perform to an audience you just went up and you did your thing and right. if they were there that was fine yeah you know uh, right. the whole study was sort of rooted more in like let's make sure these people you know like whether it's four people or 40 people mm -hmm. if they're going to come out and see it, let's make sure everybody has a great time and that we all have a good time together there was a flip side of that too though i think in that i remember and this is like where our friends in dillinger four came into it um lifter puller had played for a lot with dillinger four who were you know whose shows were just absolute chaos uh, <laughs> and in lifter puller i remember being like you know like I can't, I can only have like three beers before we play. Cause I don't want to like forget the words and you know, I don't, I wanted to keep it chill and like, you know, we gotta, we gotta be on our game. And I remember sort of with the whole steady being like, why don't we have a party? <laughs> and I think people like being at a party and if things ride off the rails a little bit, then that might be the case, you know, that might happen. And, um, yep. and, and that, that there was a, there was a loosening of that, belt or control or whatever you want to say especially in the early part of the band i mean when we started to play for a lot of people we tried to tighten it up but i would say you know in the shows we were playing for under a hundred people in the first few years it could be very chaotic yeah i think craig, was it craig did you say what we lacked what we lacked in precision we made up for an enthusiast <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean there were shows that went off absolutely went off the rails um and and that was sort of part of our by design and we you know people liked it but eventually people liked it enough that we sort of felt some responsibility to finish the songs you know <laughs> so there was <laughs> there was a so that not that same level of enthusiasm from in lifter polar like yeah i've only ever been to a Old steady show but oh actually that's not true i've seen lifter puller and red rocks but lifter puller was you know um uh um it was like we play like 30 minute sets. It was like a well oiled yeah. machine kind of like. Yeah, yeah. We like, like you know, with Lifter Puller, we'd like, if we had a gig on Saturday, we'd write the set list on Monday. We rehearsed a lot. We'd like rehearse that set. You know, we'd be like, it would, it was pretty, uh, if, if, it, if we ever made it look effortless, it wasn't, you know, like, um, so with the hold steady, it was sort of like a little, leaving a little more, um, twisting in the wind let's say yeah th there was a certain amount of spontaneity to lift your puller but the spontaneity was a little more planned <laughs> oh. in a way <laughs> i would say i mean we, we would play for half an hour so the spontaneity would, spontaneity would largely be the other 23 hours of the day yeah yeah that's then, true too gotcha. and then we totally execute on stage yeah yeah had to be tight yeah, yeah. Like it, it, it would, it would, the spontaneity would be after the show. Like after the show would be in Lifter Puller, even more chaos. But the show was always tight. And I think we kind of just, we loosened the reins a little bit and hold steady in a way that made it kind of fun. So were you guys surprising yourselves that you're getting back into this after, like you knew what had, what had gone wrong and gone right too with, with Lifter Puller, but like, was there any trepidation about you know, starting a band again? No, I, you know, it, it, it was this weird thing where we kind of had these rules, like we weren't going to play live was our first rule. Wow, and, wow. Then we, and then we weren't going to, what is it? We weren't, we were only going to practice. We were only going to basically drink beer and rehearse. And then we started, then we started right. We wrote like five songs. Then we were like, shit, we should record them. I think we might've recorded first. I, I can't remember now, but at any rate, we had some songs and then a friend was like, will you play our show? And we played, it was, I think it was January 31st, uh, 2003. It was at the North Six Club, which is kind of not too far from where we're sitting right now. And the thing about, you know, when you talk about the internet, Lifter Puller did get bigger after the internet, like, like on a national level. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, in the two years since we broke up and two or three that, that we played this show, 
um like there were suddenly for a first show a fair amount of people there um and it was like whoa so that was kind of surprising and kind of yeah. encouraging and then like but then it was just like kind of like it was that thing where it was like at that show our friend roman was in town and he begged us to come down in baltimore to play our second show and begs is a strong word but he asked us <laughs> and so we we did that and then it was like then somehow another show popped up and then next thing you know but then because it's new york and you know all of a sudden it's like you know the village voice is writing about you the rolling stone is writing about you and you're like like there was all of a sudden this momentum that there never had been um that made it easy to just kind of push forward right 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 so how did you how did you catch that momentum like how did you make sure you made all of the uh you made you took advantage of all the press you're getting now um i don't know that we there was that much plan i mean i think the one thing that was really in hindsight smart and fortuitous and um once we had like a demo um and some press we had a recording or two recordings people wanted to put our record out and um uh our friend um sid butler was at french kiss records and um he was you know possibly the obvious choice um uh, but there were some others in the mix um but but the thing i thought about sid was that his label he, he was in les sabi fav and um his label was putting out things that were kind of like pretty artsy and pretty angular and pretty punk and i thought we've kind of got a classic rock band maybe to contextualize it if like it'll be received differently if it comes out on this label um because people won't be expecting something that you know um is maybe as down the middle as as maybe as as it was you know um people might expect something more angular more artsy more weird um and i think that was smart and worked out to our advantage i think hey, people take notice i mean that's the because even though it, it, it is funny that you guys i still feel like hold steady got associated with the indie scene even though you have this much more classic sound yeah i mean i think that that was we were able to kind of like that we were able to kind of play a Venn diagram right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like like the sort of Springsteen. I think like we're I I I remember being kind of frustrated with indie, but I also thought it would be good if those people showed up at our shows. It seems it seems like too like doing something uh, you know, playing kind of rock and roll, um, which which I don't I don't know that if that's a necessarily unique thing but especially at the time and geographically where we were it seemed to be a little more unique so yeah, like it, 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 it certainly set us apart i think from, yeah. from everything else that was happening yeah i don't think like when you say like someone you know they started a, a band in brooklyn right and at in the early 2000s it's probably not you're probably not thinking that they're yeah they're playing they're they're, in, they're taking inspiration from the band and the Rolling Stones, you right, know. Right, exactly, yeah. And we found out Virginia really is for the lovers. Philly's full of friendly friends that'll love you like a brother. Pensacola parties hard with poppers, pills, and Pepsi. Ebor City is Trey Speedy, but they throw such killer parties. So let's talk about Almost Killed Me. Um, what do you guys think, listening back to that and playing those songs now, um, what the whole study was then and what it became because of it? I mean, it was, I mean, when we started talking about the records, the thing is, is that all the records started to come out very quickly. And right. um, um, so, you know, and, and, and so it's, it's in some ways hard to separate, but that was the kickoff. I mean, that was like recorded in two weekends. Um, you know, we all had day jobs and we recorded it uh, two weekends and put it together to make an album. We recorded six songs in two, three, three day sessions each and then uh, put two aside and made a 10 song record and released it. And, uh, you know, 
it was it, it felt really successful for me but it wasn't like we we're selling out clubs yet um but you know it still felt you know and it, it still does feel like a mission statement i i think in some ways every band's first record is their best record mm-hmm. you know because it's like it's just like you come out of nowhere and say this is this is what we are right um, and so it still feels pertinent it's not like i mean we play almost all those songs live yeah. like you know like yeah. there, aren't, there aren't like any like ooh missteps you know i mean um, they're all bangers yeah <laughs> I mean, it's funny though too because like i remember like the sort of making that record and having franz come in to play piano um and you know just to sort of think about where we were music where i was musically i can at least say and, and we were like, you know, is that I remember him like, is, can you play piano on this? He was like, you know, I can play piano on that. And it was like, then I think he played on Sweet Pain, which we weren't expecting him to play on. Like we, we were like, oh shit, you can play on that. And he goes, yeah. And then he was like, I can play on any song. <laughs> and I was like, oh really? Like I didn't, I didn't really like, like, oh, I didn't know if piano fits on that. He was like, will you just make it like, and then I, you know, and that pretty much, is what got him in the band and so recent Sunday I was like well shit if you can play on any song why don't you play on all of them yeah you know and then I think we had him start to play some songs live and then he was like well why don't I just stay up there and play on that next one because if I don't <laughs> want to get on and off the stage or whatever you know um and and it just seemed like it naturally but you know when you talk about almost killed me and Sep Sunday to me don't feel like wildly they weren't wildly different eras you know right right um and and none of it was i mean it was four records in four years right it was wait no 2004 2005 2006 and 2008 so yeah four records in five years five calendar years so yeah i mean but i almost killed me i think we went down to um south by southwest for the first time and that was like um you know a, a thing like like back that was sort of more of it was less of a thing back then, I guess, South by, but it was more of a like you right. could you could improve your lot in musical life right. a little more, and that's what happened. Um, yeah. Like it was, it was weird because like we played one show, which I mean every band goes to South by and plays like nine times. We right. Played, like one set, and we oh. were totally, we were excited to be there for that set. Yeah. We played well, and like literally like all of a sudden things happened you know like um people were excited and we came back and we recorded that next record that you know around christmas of 2004 i guess and then you know but by the end of the last day of the year i remember i went to my office christmas party (laughs) during almost killed me yeah 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 and i went to my office christmas party and so i kind of like begged out of loading into the studio and i said i'll be by to help you know because it was actually coincidentally just by the studio we were going to record several sunday Mm. and i remember kind of showing up a few beers in and they had we had like spin and rolling stone and remember like the year end you know before again before the internet was what it is today year-end issue those of those were big because mm-hmm. they had the best oh, yeah. and each of those magazines had the best record you didn't hear this year mm-hmm. like the best ten, you know top 10 and both of them said almost killed me was was that and wow. i remember thinking like well let's make the rec- best record everyone does here this year March of 05, we went to South by that time we played like four shows. And that was, I think when I started to feel like this was gonna, um, do what it did, you know, um, felt like it felt like, um, people were really paying attention. Right. Right. Did that change the band at all? Now that there's expectation or maybe a small amount of expectation, right. And then a lot of attention. 
Yeah, not not yet. I mean, I think it was sort of there was a honeymoon and, and it was like, um, but it was, I mean, it, it was definitely a different feeling. I mean, to, I mean, you know, just to like show up at a town, the touring on that, even, I mean, these are not big clubs, but you know, to go to wherever it was, X city that you've never been in before and play a sold out show is a much different feeling than being in Lifter Polar. <laughs> Sure. Right. Um, you know, so yeah, so there's that. I mean, ample things being made available to you. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, there was, there, there was, it, 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 it didn't change yet because there was still a lot of cooperation in the level we were, had to do with that. You know, we sort of still were driving ourselves. I think at some point we got a guy running sound for us. Um, but um you know, there's still, there's still driving and there's still like someone had to stay sober enough to drive after the show, etc. You know, there was still like a real thing. Um, but it was, there was definitely people paying, you know, paying attention and there was definitely like starting to talk to press a lot was a thing, you know. Mm. Um, it, it, there used to be a lot, there used to be a lot more places you would talk to. Right. I mean, for instance, you know, like you're, you're, you do a show in Columbia, Missouri, they'd have a weekly mag and you'd, you'd have to do like an interview with them, you know? And, and like, so every show, let's say every show you played, you probably did two or three interviews, you right. know? So the amount of fucking time on the phone was insane. Right. And I think because of the way, you know, technology has developed, you do a lot less of that or sees here. You can, Maybe if you're a bigger band, you can just do like one and, you know, you can do your times piece and let it go out there. But like, I just remember fucking doing a lot. That was one big thing. You guys should do like press conferences like they do after games and stuff. I felt, I mean, because you were answering the same question every night, you know, like you would just be like, but I just remember being like outside of, I remember just like in knocking them out, like, like being like drinking with my friends and being like, I'll be back in an hour and then like, going out on the street and like doing four 15 minute interviews right. and walking back in. Like, and I, I'm sure they're all stupid, whatever, you know, but that was a thing. That was a, that was a thing that like, and you know, and, and you're, and let's be honest, we're blessed that people cared and it was very new that people cared that much. So you're excited. So, you know, like, it wasn't like I was questioning anything like, is this going to help? It's like, yeah, I'll do it. so what did you do to make separation sunday going in the album that people would hear that year like well i mean i don't know i guess we just we had songs but we had um we had the songs and we had franz in on it and we were kind of i think we had kind of arrived at a sound of sorts and it was kind of this big guitar piano thing that kind of harkened back to things we liked. Um, and I think we leaned into some of the, I don't want to say schmaltzy elements, but some of the big rock moves that would make it less Indian. Uh, you know, we always used to say, this is going to bum people out, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like, they're like when we would go to the breakdown of Stevie Nicks, you know, and <laughs> it goes down to piano and like, like, oh yeah, there's going to be some people that are not going to be into this. And we thought that was that was a badge of honor, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so I think that there was something like real kind of defiant and, um, but exciting about that whole process. And, uh, and, you know, we worked on it and we, we, we were there for a while making, it wasn't like, I mean, I think we made like a month, wasn't it? It took a month or something, you know? And, and, and um, we were, the, the label had a strange arrangement with this studio um in like Tribeca and uh and we were yeah and Dave Gardner our friend from Minneapolis who worked on the Lifter Polar Records came out and did it with Dean Baltalonis who um who had done almost killed me and I think I don't know if our what our deal was we just thought two heads are better than one or we thought Dave Dave was kind of a good uh big picture guy I think and um and those guys hadn't even met each other. I, and in hindsight, I'm kind of weird. Feel it's weird that it was like, yeah, bring in this other guy I haven't met. I'll, 
um, I'll just share the credit with him. And, you know, but Dean was totally open to that. And like, he went and picked up Dave at the airport. And I feel like by the time they showed up at the studio, they were best friends. And it, and it just was crazy. And, and, and it was fun. We made, we had, we had a fun time making the record. It was, um, there was like a local bar called South's that had, um, I think it just closed. It had great burgers. We'd go down there and drink and, um, I don't know, you guys are Minnesotans, right? Or at least Alex, you are? I am, both. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I remember like watching that game. Uh, I don't know if you're a Vikings guy, but I'm watching that game when Randy Moss uh, mooned the crowd in the Packers. Yeah, that was during the making of that. I remember being at okay. South like, drinking whiskey in the middle, middle of the day. Uh, watching that but yeah Ted got bit by a dog down there like Bob, at the restaurant yeah Bobby I think he came down he was like I got bit by a dog the owner's dog I think you traded the you were like kind of leveraged it for some free drinks yeah or something. yeah it's like hey your dog bit me yeah. <laughs> uh, oh uh Bobby then came back and threw up I mean it was yeah it was I mean, we were having a lot of fun making it but it was also pretty serious you know and yeah and, um and you know I think about like one thing that I think about all of these all of these stories is that vinyl has obviously become such a big thing, and um, the lead time on vinyl is such that you know records are finished. There's a bigger gap now these days than yeah. when records are finished to when they come out. But CD was the preferred format at this time, and so you know we wrapped it up in late January, I think, and you know it was street date was like may 5th and that was all fun right you know and uh and i all the records were like that um up until ooh, i don't know um maybe until having us whenever but yeah wow so speaking of minneapolis you guys are now like you would obviously been in uh a great minneapolis band but hadn't you know gotten a ton of a ton of attention outside but now you guys are returning as like hometown heroes is that I mean, it, it was partially because I sang a lot about Minneapolis too, though. I mean, it wasn't like right. it was far from my mouth at any times. I mean, we were telling these stories that were all set there. It was exciting. I mean, in, in some way, and it was not, um, not planned this way, but it allowed us to sort of have two hometowns, you know? Yeah, right. Um, and that's not a bad thing, you know, like, you um, know, um, you know, I, I think that it, it, at first probably it almost killed me, you know, Minneapolis was the biggest market probably, um, on separation Sunday, some places started to catch up and, you know, by, by boys and girls, it's probably was, you know, um, pretty well spread out, which is ultimately, you know, no matter where you're from, no matter what towns you love, you, you're, you're, I think you're probably hoping for an even spread. And I came back to start a band, of course. some more so we walked across that grain belt bridge into bright new minneapolis she said i think of all those things i did what just momentum from the party pit boys and girls in america that's where that's where things really get hit all of a sudden now you're getting that attention that you aim for <laughs> sunday well it's funny yeah, we, we, we were working really hard. I mean, when I think back on all this, it's like we were, we were touring on, on Separation Sunday, which was wildly successful, at least at the level we were at. And we were making all these, we were going in and writing all these songs. Um, and we went to write Almost Killed Me, or I mean, uh, Boys and Girls. And then that, at some point, John Agnello, had been he'd actually been at our first south by show and he approached us about making separation sunday and we we're like no we're just gonna stick with what we're what we know and then we felt like boys and girls we could use another you know another voice mm -hmm. um, and so we brought in him and he was a real you know nothing against dean or dave but they but, but we knew him before so it was kind of amazing to bring in a producer that had all these credits and all this experience and all these stories and watch him really produce a record. And um, I, I don't know that, I still think product, producing like a record producer credit is the most, like a very amorphous term, you never know. 
you see a producer produced by, you don't know if that guy just booked the studio time. You don't know if he worked on the songs with the band. You right. Don't know if he just like lined up the drugs. Um, you know, <laughs> mean a lot of things. But there is a, ultimately like a movie producer kind of credit where it's like, you give me all the money, you give me the, or you give me the budget, I should say, and I will produce by the end of the process a record for you to the label. Right. And, um, and you know, John did work, was a producer in every sense of the word. He um, worked on the songs with us, you know, really helped us on every level. But I think one of the things I remember that was really awesome, that I'll, I don't know why this made such an impression on me, but the first day he took out a calendar and he showed us a calendar of the month and he said, these are your two, three days off. Um, and, you know, th that's when you have to hang out with your girlfriend or your wife or whatever, call your mom. These are, you know, this is our schedule. And honestly, that was so professional to me. Like, it was like everything else I'd always like ended the day in the studio and be like, so what time should we start tomorrow? You know, like there was, there was like a little less foresight. So that respect of everyone's kind of time, um, was moving to me and sort of, and what, what, what that kind of solidified my idea of what a producer does is, a, is he's a leader. Mm -hmm. And first and foremost, even if he can't like run a tape deck, um, right. he, he leads the experience and right. he, he acts as the, uh, as the guide. And so um, I felt like that calendar day was as important to me as anything I've, I've seen. When you know what the schedule is and what you're going to be doing from day to day, yeah, it, it just it helps keep everybody, I think, in a better place emotionally too. Mm. You know, like, because there's a, there's a lot of sitting around, there's a lot of waiting. If if the if that communication isn't there, it can be really difficult to be in the studio because you have to just try to fill the time and, and you're not sure when it's going to be your turn to perform or your time to perform. Right. It's interesting. I think there's also a, like I'm I'm not the boss but I'm leading the charge. And that's, you know, that's confusing. You know, fans are, fans are <laughs> strange uh, organizations with, you know, unclear hierarchies and stuff like that. Yeah, so quasi-democratic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone coming in and saying, look, follow me, uh, I think is very, um, was important and, and, and it helped us make a great record and, uh, we had, again, we had a lot of fun making it, um, but it was it was work, and we'd signed to a new label, um, which was exciting and you know going to be able to do things bigger and um, uh, and suddenly you know we knew also that after the success of Separation Sunday, that people were going to be like ready to buy this record on the day it came out, you know, right. like there was going to be people were waiting for it. We drink and we dry up and now we crumble in the dust We get wet and we corrode and now we're covered up in rust Was there anything like sonically or any like sort of evolution you guys were thinking about or aiming for by this time? One thing, one thing that was I would say is that Separation Sunday was largely written when Franz kind of came aboard and played on top of it um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying like he, he played, you know, the arrangements were. The songs were kind of written and then he came in and played. Piano. Mostly written. I think, you know, um, Stevie Nicks might have been the one that we arranged with him because it obviously has that big piano breakdown. But, but Boys and Girls, like we wrote with him in the room. So like, you know, there was a lot of chance for dynamics um, going down, like even in right away and stuck between stations going down to the piano. So that's that, actually, yeah, that's what I thought of right when you said that, that like the piano is more integrated in the, in the sound. And I think like the Boys and Girls America, that was the first whole study CD I ever bought. And I remember that was the first song I ever heard was that stuck between stations. I was just like, oh, <laughs> that was just like such a moment. I was like, yes, this band is for me. And that I think that, yeah, I need that piano is so striking. It's very much like, yeah, it's, it's it's not it's not like it's much more integral definitely it's not like an accent it's like a an element of the song like franz brings a lot of 
like not just dynamics but a lot of drama yeah like scene change the yeah. sort mm -hmm. of the idea of a scene change bridge is sort of a yeah. you know, Hans kind of brings the a lot to the hold steady is that bridge that goes like whoa you know right <laughs> I think like uh i think that there's well i you know i think there like there's a flirting with you know think some of the classic rock but maintaining some of the art stuff um in the first two and I feel like boys and girls might have been the wholeheartedly embrace of just like warmth, the warmth of classic rock, you know, and and right. and, and classic classic sounds. I think that I sort of feel like there's like a. I have this theory which I is not totally developed, but like that artists' best biggest records are oftentimes when they completely embrace the music of their youth, rather than you know when they give up fighting against it. <laughs> sort of. And I felt like some, in some ways Boys Against Girls was that, you know? Totally. It also seems like the album where, I don't know, just like it became the most about like the melody. That's probably true. Yeah. I mean, I think also I was learning to sing. But there, 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 there's something that it's hard to, because it's just obvious, but all the touring makes you a better band. All the all the time playing your instrument, singing into a mic, learning to sing into a microphone sounds obvious but just like being like i'm not intimidated by this i think i do this pretty well and um you know so but we had, it was a fun record to make i mean i it was also such a positive record which is great because you know i i think personally the touring we were very strong as a band but i think in each like I can speak for myself. My life was really in rough shape, my personal life. Um, so the band was ultimately this super positive beacon that I just wanted my life to be the band always, you know? Um, and, you know, like touring, you know, it, it got to a point where touring um, uh, right up, you know, until the, right around then it was like, yes, any chance to leave town, I'll take it. Uh -huh. Yeah, and uh, so there's something about there's something belligerently positive about that record, which I kind of admire because <laughs> uh, I, I look back and I'm like, ooh, that year was not that positive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> belligerently positive. I love it. Yeah. Um, so I remember in the uh, the a positive rage documentary. Um, Tad is like, you're you're like you're you're on the phone. You guys are like in the hotel room and you're talking about. Oh man, the record's selling so well. Like the label, there, you know, it's so. I had no idea what they were talking about. I just pretended like it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, did, so did you guys? Was it was it weird now having this this big label um, involved? Like, did that change anything at all for you guys? Because you talked about before, you're like a you're like the indie band that loves classic rock. So you're, you're used to going against the grain, and you're not like ever. You're never well, like having somebody's vision of you. We were, I mean, we signed to Vagrant, which was a, you know, part of Universal at the time, but it was not a big operation. So mm -hmm. it wasn't, it didn't feel, I mean, they had muscle, um, but, you know, it didn't feel like overwhelming. It wasn't like you were forgetting, like, it wasn't like there was 20 guys that you had to, right. women, you couldn't remember their names. It was like, you know, there was, there was a handful of people over there and they were all pretty, pretty good and friendly and they did a good job and, and, uh, so it didn't it didn't feel like that. The positive rage is funny um, about that because none of us had seen that um, for a while. Um, and a few years back, when we played in London one Sunday, we got a movie theater and showed it for the fans. Wow! And uh, and and everyone was kind of sweating it. I'd seen it just before that, and I was like, you know, I don't think it's that bad. And everyone sat there. And we had, like sat in the front row, and we all watched it. And everyone kind of collectively was like, "That wasn't that bad. That that wasn't as bad as a lot of." I think everyone remembered that we like you know, but I do remember like watching. Um, and there was a one scene where their soundtrack, sound check, we're in London, and I have, a, <laughs> I have a pint glass full of whiskey, and I'm like, "That's sound check." Yeah. Like what is what does wow. that show look like? I would never do that to. <laughs> um, like, but like, you know, so, so there was sort of like this, you know, uh, like a dread about it, but I really actually thought it was charming and, and came off really well. And it, it captured 
I mean, I remember well, when I watched it again, I kept saying sold out, sold out. And I, I realized like, God, I, I hope people don't think I'm coming off braggy that we're selling off all these shows. I just, after Lifter Puller and all that, I just literally cannot believe that yeah. these shows are consistently selling out. It was a shock. Right. What, what were you guys worried about? Like, what, what, did you, what did you imagine in your head the movie was like? Uh, drunk and like, yeah. I just, oh, okay. just being drunk and like, maybe like, you know, talk, drunk talk is basically, is yeah. what I was drunk talk. Drunk talk and drug talk are, yeah. are two things huh. that they never, especially listening back to it, you're just like, like, I, I still haven't seen the entire thing from really? front, front to back. I, I mean, I've seen, I think I've seen the majority you of it. You weren't there that day? I came in a little bit late. I caught about, I think I caught the last two thirds of it. No, it was the last half of it, but I, I, I know that I was uh, behaving like an exceptional jerk off at the time. So I, it's been tricky <laughs> okay. to watch, I think. I would say the deleted scenes are probably, I still don't know if I have the stomach for those. Yeah, but, um, I, I know that the, I the edit that made the, the, made the um, cut was good. Pretty that good. was that, and that, just hearing that was a relief that I, now yeah, there, was, was, there was nothing, nothing bad. <laughs> I need to go back and watch the deleted scenes. I, I think I didn't do that when I watched it recently. I've never seen that. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, deleted scenes in that that didn't like. Uh, oh, there's no. Oh, oh no, like, they were destroyed. Sure, the unedited footage has some real. <laughs> what, what was made the film was pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. There's gonna come a time when the true scene leaders forget where they differ and get big picture because the kids at the shows they'll have kids of their own to sing along songs and be our scriptures Okay, so stay positive. Um, so your lyrics have started to change by that point, not always in, in you know, the unified scene world. Uh, you're starting to move away from that some. Uh, but, you know, it certainly, um, you know, it, the characters are still there. Did you see, but did you see have a sense of finality with that album, lyrically? Yeah, no, I don't know. I'm not sure. I know, like, I got into this thing where I really wanted to avoid what I call, which is still something I, I, I am, you know, fight with. Like, people like sort of the the narrative of the, like, Sep Sunday, you know, a story. But you get into this sort of trapped in the closet thing, you know, where, like, you know, um, like, you know, you know, the R. Kelly thing, like, you know, where he's just narrating <laughs> he does. And there's sort of not room for other people to put their own hopes and dreams in there. So I think stay positive. I was sort of maybe, I mean, there's some pretty straight narratives, like one for the cutters in there, but you know, yeah. um, I also think it was trying to start to leave some room for some, for, for, you know, um, not just telling people about these three people moving around the country and, and, you know, eventually you just run out of things that they can do. Um, but, you know, um, I think stay positive. It, it, I, I think I'm guessing I speak for the band that even though stay positive came out in 08, well, here's, here's one thing. When boys and girls happen, we went to Europe for the first time and um, we the first two records didn't come out there. So boys and girls happened and we went over there and it, like it, it, it was even bigger um, in, in the UK. Yeah. And so we started touring all the time in the UK, started spending so much time there and um, which was awesome. Met tons of amazing people that are still our friends and um, you know, played some of the biggest shows that we played headliners, you know, in um, over there. And um but it, 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 it like, so suddenly now that we're touring both in the States and the UK, there's twice as much touring to be done. So that's why probably Stay Positive took till 2008 rather than right. 2007, you know? Um, but but we, we record, but we were on tour like the whole time we actually wrote that record really impressively on the road. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of impressive the work ethic of playing a show going back and especially me, Tad and Franz, like 
sitting in front of a laptop and making like demos with a Franz had this weird rollout keyboard. Remember that thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like almost like a mat yeah, that like you a would placemat. Like, like a placemat that you put in a USB, and he would like do that, and and we would like record these demos, and we wrote basically the songs like backstage and in hotel rooms, and um and then we came and recorded it, and I guess what I'm getting at is that it felt to me like stay positive and boys and girls were almost companion pieces. We once again, we made them with them. We made it with John and yellow. Um, we made it the same. We made it also at water music, right? Yeah. Yeah. Same studio. Yeah. Same, same studio. So um, there was, there was a very much a continuation from where I sit feeling. Um, it all feels like this part of the same era, same blur. And um, um you know, I think we did this slight change in sounds, but not hugely. And uh, and again, we went, you know, and then I, I do stay positive. I have kind of a fond memory of that one being in, it came out while we were in the UK and like sort of celebrating the release of that while we were over there. And that was, that was pretty fun. I remember that, uh, that being a cool thing. Hmm, awesome. Without looking at a track listing, I can confuse which songs are on which record with between oh, Save really? Boys and Girls. Yeah. yeah, sometimes like not. Yeah, it's off, but yeah, it was very much a similar. Hard to distinguish the two sessions and remembering just incidents from both. Too. Yeah. So well, I guess maybe that maybe that that's how it is for a lot of musicians. Fans tend to you know divide things into the album and the era and everything. But is it more amorphous for you guys? Probably. I mean, especially given how quick we were working. And I think with Boys and Girls and Stay Positive, that thing that the fact that we record them in the same studio, like with the same producer, yeah, really kind of like makes them run together in some yeah. way a little bit, you know? Yeah. We can get together, sit down on your floor and listen to your records. Heaven is whenever. Uh, when we talked for the zine, Craig, you said you were. It, it became kind of a chronicle of the struggle. Yeah, I mean, all this touring that we're doing, you know, and I talking about going to the UK for boys and girls and kind of never coming back and uh, and still you know and still not having you know uh, we were really it, it felt good but like it wasn't like I was coming home any of us were coming home and going um, to the to the beach to recover or something you know like it, it was still like hard work and tiring and I think the wheels started to come off the wagon um, around the end of the touring for Stay Positive, I would say. Um, yeah, well, actually, it wasn't, it was, you went to the hospital the fall of Stay Positive, so. Yeah, like almost, fall of eight. we did, I think, one quick tour. We did the well, tour in the loved ones, and then you went to the hospital, and then was, we were going to go to Europe, we didn't, and then you came out of the hospital, and we, and we did the truckers tour. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, we were, Tad had been, had pancreatitis, and you know, we were, it was, it would become, it'd become tough and some of the newness had maybe worn off. And I, we may have, it's funny, I think we may have lacked an idea of um, what next or what, what, you know, how to ramp up. Like there's sort of a ramping up from um, Sep Sunday to Boys and Girls. Yeah. And I don't know if that there was an obvious way for us to ramp it up next, you know, and um and so I think, you know, just sort of the, you know, I, I, we talked about in the zine, but there was, there was an exhaustion. There was also like, I think in my part of preoccupation with the idea that we we're making our fifth record that, you know, mm -hmm. that, uh, and you know, there's also this shit that, that I think a lot of bands go through that it's like, you've been doing it a while and it's fun and you're enjoying it. You start to be like, I don't want to stop this and go get a real job, which is a terrible place to make art from. Um, right. you know, I, I think that the second you start to think that is when you're going to about to put out some shit that's not, you know, anytime you're using art, you know, to make payroll or something like that, uh, it's, it's, 
the decisions start to get made that are, you know, and I, 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 I think that, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously, I think the label um, people were saying, you know, you need to, you need to, you need to have a bigger song. You need to write choruses. You should, you know, and I was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't, but I, I have to think that some of that seeps in anyways, you know, and there, there, there's pressure on this, that, that those kind of expectations that are sort of intangible that like, you know, you just, just have to kind of, and I, that, that seemed like that, that record for me suffered from that too. Like, but, but, you know, looking back and I said that, 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 you know, it's impressive how much work we put in and um, I'm impressed by us because it was a tough one. And, uh, but like, there's a lot of songs, as you know, on the, uh, on the deluxe edition. And we just, so for Massive Nights this year uh, on the happy hour, we played like, you know, a sort of a new cut of the album reimagined. Um, and we dug into some of the songs and maybe like made them, made a few changes or tried to arrange them a little better for the way Steven, you know, Steven uh, Franz are on it now. And I was blown away the songs are, you know, they, I, I was really, I was really happy with how it came out and um, uh, really love the songs. And, you know, like our whole lives is a song that like, I've always liked it, but, you know, playing it live the other day or a month ago, um we got it in a great place live <laughs> and uh and i think it's like you know i love it i love that song i think it's funny and um we were sort of brought out what was great about it and uh and so now i like look it's 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 i don't think it's the best record we made but i also i don't um i feel, i i'm definitely proud of it and even more so now than i was six months ago oh that's yeah. awesome I mean, watching, yeah, I was, I mean, that was my comment. I gained like a whole new appreciation for it, watching that, that, that sound check or that session that you guys played and, um, and in hearing you guys talk about it was, was cool too. But, um, yeah, I was like, wow, I'm like these, I'm like this so much more going on to these songs than I had ever heard before. Um, you Slight know, discomfort. It, Slight Discomfort was another one. Like, wow. Like, yeah. Like, so fun. <laughs> And like, um, yeah, I mean, I just don't think, you know, I, I also, we didn't, you know, we talk about leadership in John Agnello, you know, we kind of, we, we went in with Dean Baltalonis, um, we kind of like, we're like, let's just try it a little more on our own. Like we'll get Dean in, he knows. I wonder if what, if we would have gotten a whole new producer that we were a little bit scared of mm. what that record would have been like. Right. Okay. Cause he, you know, to, for, for someone that would have, you know, had some difficult talks or, you know, or put a little more of a stamp on it or maybe just led a little bit, you know? Um, the one thing that I did remember in that, uh, in, in that working with Dean again for that one was, I, I feel like maybe that was my, um, somehow that might address some issues of like, let's go back to, you know, the two records that we made with Dean were fun and we were just kind of fucking around and it was this and like, let's, if, if we were Dean again, then we can head, we can get back there and, and sort of maybe get away from any expectations or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that that I was really, I mean, I wasn't thinking clearly period at that point, but it was, I think that was sort of the intention. Yeah. But there was thought behind the decision. You can always, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, my, 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 I'm second guessing. I'm saying like I, I think right. like probably a better move. Not that Dean's not an awesome producer, but he was our very good friend. At which that is, point, yeah. You know, um, uh, I think you know to have some guy, you know, I don't know, uh, who's a scary. If there's such a thing as a scary record producer, come in and be like, these songs are shit, <laughs> you know, or this song, yeah. you know, like like and and uh, and make, and make Steve us Steve Albini maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's really gonna? Someone who's gonna be like um, crack the whip, yeah. not, not to the point where it took the fun out, but just to, just to sort of like look, you know. How how much does um, with an album like Heaven's Whenever? How much does the uh, critical and fan reception play into it? Like if if the audiences had gone crazy for it, the critics had gone crazy for it. Do you think you would look at it differently? Yeah, of course. But um, I think when they when the you know the critic 
yeah, if the audience isn't going, reacting to it, um, and the critics aren't, it's, there's going to be some disappointment, especially coming off of like the trajectory we, we were right. on. Um, but you know, the shows were, um, the shows were still good. Um, but yeah, you, you always want, you want people to like it. You want there to be a connection. And, and you know, I, I guess I sort of felt like um, when, you know, when there's new songs, it's understandable that the crowd doesn't, you know, the audience doesn't jump on them right away, you know, because they don't know them. But like, I sort of felt like halfway through the um, heaven, uh, like, wow, people know these songs already <laughs> and they aren't really jumping on them, um, you know? So, but you know, I, look, if you're going to have a long career, like, you know, which we now are 17 years or so into this band. Wow. You know, if you look at new, whoever, Neil Young, Lou Reed, the Rolling Stones, whatever, I'm not putting this on the level with those people, but they all have, you know, they have peaks and valleys and that's something you're just going to have to accept. I mean, if that record's your deepest valley, I think you'd have to you'd have to consider that a pretty good success. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, run. right. And and some of those peaks and valleys are going to be entirely in the reception.